Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It is truth, and Lord, a truth has consequences. It has implications on our lives, and Lord, that we would wrestle with that truth this morning, and Lord, that you might give us insight in the life of Gideon and your great work through him. Amen. I'm going to do a series on Gideon, um, and everybody has a fairly positive idea of Gideon, um, but when I think on the whole life of Gideon, what you all know about are you know, Gideon and his mighty man and going and doing all these amazing things, but uh, in Sunday school and in VBS, we lop off the end of Gideon's life and we don't find out uh, how he expires. And Gideon is a terribly tragic figure. Uh, and when I read about him, for me, he's a little scary uh, because uh, I see a lot of me uh, in him, and, um, or a lot of him and me, or both. And um, so we're going to take a look at Gideon because he really is... Um, an everyman uh, kind of guy, and we're going to zoom through him in uh, four uh, easy weeks, and uh, this morning we're going to start in Judges chapter 6. If you know anything about the book of Judges, it's a cyclical uh, system that goes through uh, every time, uh, basically this is the most famous verse in all the book of Judges, Uh, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what will happen is they do evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord hands them over into the hands of some marauding armies, or in this case the Midianites, uh, who basically put so much pressure on them that they cry uncle. And they cry out for the Lord, and the Lord then sends a deliverer. And then things are great, and then what do you think you read next? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, this happens over and over again, and then God, once again, hands them over to suffering uh, under the hands of somebody else or sometimes to themselves, and, um, and then he sends them a deliverer, and things are fine, and then they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And this happens, this is you know, from judge to judge to judge to judge, uh, what happens. And in Gideon's case, God has handed them over into the hands of the Midianites, And what the Midianites have done is they've not occupied the land, they're not looking to take over politically, but they're exploiting them economically. Uh, They're sort of semi-nomads, and they are actually the first people that we know of in recorded history to domesticate the camel and make it work for them. Uh, So they were very quick, and what they would do is seasonally, they would show up in the land of Canaan, and they would pillage the place. Uh, They would steal grain, they would steal produce, and they would basically be these human locusts that would take anything of uh, value, foodstuff-wise, and consume it. And then when they had ravaged the land, they'd pick up and they'd leave. Well, sort of like me at a barbecue place. Uh, But um, I have an uncle who's actually been banned from an all-you-can-eat place. um, (laughs) For good reason. <laughs> but, um, well, uh, try as they may, they'd love to get rid of the Midianites, but they can't. And uh, what is amazing about this is that in Israel, everybody's saying, oh, woe is me. Woe is me. How could this happen? How could this happen in spite of the fact that they can look five chapters before them and see that this is just the way that it is? And their idea is that God uh, has abandoned them. But we see in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Um, 
And uh, the Midianites went and they had all these strongholds all over the place and Israel could not get rid of them. Uh, But what we find is that Midian's taking of Israel and holding them ransom was actually God's plan. Was God's plan. That's a little bit scary. And like the, the Israelites, most of us, when anytime anything bad happens, we think God has departed. Uh, we, our initial thought is uh, we're under spiritual attack. And that may be the case. It may be spiritual attack. The enemy might be after you. Uh, but here in Judges chapter 6, it's very clear that actually God himself has handed them over um, to uh, the Midians. Now, why would God do that? Well, if you read Judges, the whole big thing is about idols. And uh, after uh, Joshua, when they were handed in the promised land, uh, they were told to go and uh, get rid of the people, the Canaanites who inhabited the land, and crush their idols and get rid of them. And what happened was they didn't really do that. In fact, when it gives the list of all the things that they were supposed to do, uh, they really only did it in one town. Uh, The rest of them, they kind of cohabitated and lived together. And so they had uh, these idols, um, but more than that, uh, the Israelites uh, really um, thought that maybe they could cohabitate with these people. It wouldn't be a big deal. And idolatry had sprung up and become a huge, huge deal in Israel. And because of that, God said, I have to get your attention. I have to get your attention. And so he sent the Midianites, to crush the Israelites. And the thing about why the Israelites thought that surely God had departed from them is because idolatry, this is why idolatry is such a problem, is because an idol always promises freedom. An idol will always promise freedom, but they always bring slavery. An idol will always promise you freedom, but it will almost, it will, not almost, it will always guarantee you slavery. Right, so if there, and it doesn't have to be a little, you know, person up on your mantelpiece. You say hello, say hello to my idol. Um, but you know, for people who say, look, I'm just working really hard to become financially independent. I want to get to a place where I no longer have to worry about money. And as you know, um, Andrew Carnegie was once asked, Mr. Carnegie, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Um, uh, you know, no one ever gets financially independent. And what you find is the very thing that you think will give you independence, wealth, you become a slave to. You find yourself constantly working and pouring your life into something that you think will bring you freedom, but has in fact enslaved you. It's not just money, it's anything. Because an idol is essentially at its very, in our world today, is something at its, you know, a, a basic level is not something that's necessarily bad. There's nothing wrong with money. Uh, There's nothing wrong with uh, being a member of a club. There's nothing wrong with driving a nice car or living in a nice neighborhood or wanting our children to go to nice schools or whatever it might be. Um, There's nothing wrong with those in and of themselves. But once they become center and you think, if I just had this, then all would be okay, you become a slave. You become a slave to it. And it never, ever satisfies. This is the chain of progression that plagues all of our lives. When you're in the fifth grade and you're picking dodgeball teams, remember that? Uh, you just pray, please don't pick me last. If I get picked in the first round of the draft or maybe second or third, I'm going to be okay. I won't be thought of as a total dweeb. Um, but then, uh, you know, just when you think you've outgrown that, you get to middle school and there's the lunch table. 
if I just sat at the cool lunch table, then that will be the end all be all and life will be good. But then you sit at the cool lunch table and then you get to high school and you think as long as my parents don't make me drive a 1981 Chevrolet pickup truck with a high beam change on the floor, um, very traumatic, um, then all, all will be well. All will be well. Uh, and then you think, well, I'm growing up, I'm getting more mature, but that just manifests itself into, you know, one of the worst times of year for high school seniors is when you get your acceptance letters for colleges because, you know, you always have somebody who gets into somewhere better than you do, right, or earlier than you do. And, uh, you know, well, I didn't get into this school because of such and such, right? It's painful. And then you get off to college, and even if you got in the college you wanted to, then you got to join the right fraternity or the right sorority or, or be involved in the right things. And then when you graduate, you think, well, now I've graduated. I have all this confidence behind me. But then you think, well, it would be better if I were, you know, if I don't get into this firm. It's well, gosh, it never ends, does it? And we become slaves to it. And this is exactly where Israel was. Israel was in bondage and slavery to the idols of the land. And God gave them up to that. God gave them up to that. Paul talks about this in Romans as well. That often God's judgment is manifested upon people in this way. He lets you have what you want. He lets us have what we want. And that's judgment. Paul talks about it in Romans and says that he gave them up to themselves and let them do whatever they wanted to do. And what they found was that it was a curse upon them. And that is where Israel is going. And God works by allowing natural consequences of our actions. Sin has natural outgrowth, doesn't it? I mean, if you do something, um, you know, what's something very obvious? If I run a red light uh, and the police officer comes up and knocks on my window, um, I'm not going to deny running the red light. Now, I might try to make an excuse as to why it was okay for me to run the red light, uh, but I'm not going to say uh, no, and when he gives me the ticket, that's a natural consequence of, of doing that. Uh, and that's true of all of our lives in a whole bunch of ways. Um, but God does often shield us from the natural consequences of our sin. In his mercy, uh, he, we often don't get what we deserve. I'm sure all of us can think right now of doing something really awful and we got away with it. We, we weren't caught or whatever it is um, and we, we dodged a bullet. And uh, sometimes uh, God does shield us uh, from the natural, natural consequences of our sin, but here he hands Israel over to them. And uh, he uh, is being very fair and just in the way that he's chastening Israel. Right? Israel uh, really ought not to be able to say, look, you're crazy, uh, we're really not the problem, uh, but there's a part of them that really knows that something is not right. And he does this, he hands them over, because he wants to revive Israel spiritually. Right? He wants to revive Israel spiritually. Now this doesn't mean that God is vindictive, but he does love us too much to let us get away with sin. God loves us too much to let us get away with sin. Um, think about it. I mean, if you have done something in your lives that, that you were able to dodge the bullet on, um, that sometimes is an incentive to, to keep it up, right? I got away with it this one time. Maybe we can keep doing it, um, whatever the case may be. And oftentimes it is an act of mercy uh, for someone to intervene and say, whoa, before you go any further, let's stop 
And let's look at what's going on and whether or not this is really the road that you want to go down. Because what you'll find is that you'll get stuck. And we uh, have all encountered people who, uh, if you tell one lie in life, you have to tell a whole lot more. Right? You have to at least tell two lies to cover up every lie. And it just gets to the point where things are so crazy and out of hand uh, that... Um, you don't remember who you told what to and, and how it is. And, uh, and uh, eventually, uh, you'll be found out. Uh, even in death, you'll be found out. Do you all remember um, Charles Corralt? Was it Charles Corralt? Remember him? Charles Corralt. This is before Internet, but still, good gracious, how did you get away with this? Charles Corralt had two different families, two wives, two sets of children, and they never knew anything about one another until old Charles died. And, uh, and that became uh, a real mess. But you can only imagine, uh, I, I bet you by the end of Charles Kralt's life, do you know what he was hoping and praying? That he would, di- the, that he would die before he was found out. That he wouldn't now, he is going to have to face the consequences of, of his actions, uh, ultimately. But, uh, but uh, his whole life, and, and the family said it, like just the intricacy and, and how he had managed everything, it wasn't, it wasn't easy and in fact consumed his life and it had an effect on his work. And after all this happened, his, all his co-workers said, gosh, now it all makes sense. You know, we just thought that he had very, uh, a high-maintenance family, but it turned out he had two high-maintenance families. Um, gosh, I mean, talk about judgment. What was this guy thinking? Uh, but um, he had to lie and his life was totally marked by lies. And not just lies, to, but lies to a family. I mean, you can only imagine his wives uh, and his children who had, you know, when he died and thought, is anything that my husband or my dad told me true? What, uh, what did he say uh, that was actually true? And, um, and if somebody had only said to Charles Corralt, and Charles Corralt had listened, that would have been key. Um, Charles, you don't want to do this, buddy. Or even uh, after the second marriage took place and no children were involved. I mean, there would be devastation, but, but good grief. Uh, I think one of the marriages was, you know, was about 50 years and the other one was about you know, half that. Uh, just the devastation that that causes. Uh, and uh, so in this case with Israel, uh, hallelujah, that God loves Israel too much to let them get away with the sin uh, so that they don't end up like Charles Corral. Well, but the second thing that we need to remember is don't assume that suffering is due to sin in your life. Uh, Don't assume that the suffering is automatically the product of sin uh, in your life. Suffering will always have a purpose, Romans 8, 28. Uh, But it's not always sent, as as it is here in Judges 6, to awaken us because of some besetting sin. Right? We have to believe that because you look at John chapter 9 and you see Jesus suffering. And was Jesus suffering because of his sin? No, <laughs> because he had no sin. Uh, and so sometimes I think that, you know, like the bumper sticker, life happens. Um, that uh, sometimes it is a spiritual attack. Sometimes it is uh, the consequence of sin. And sometimes it's just life. Sometimes it's just life. But in all of those things, our answer ought to be to cry out for mercy, right? That's always the answer. That's always the answer. Well, um, God hands them over to the Midianites. They're whining and they're complaining. They're under great uh, stress and duress in life. uh, And they cry out to the Lord for him to send them help. Now, here's the funny thing, that what they do in chapter... uh, uh, Well, let's look at verses 6 and 8. 6, 7, and 8. 
And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, understatement of the year. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, etc., etc. The Lord sent them a prophet, not a savior. They cried out for help, and the Lord didn't send them a, a savior. He sent them a prophet. And what they got was instead of deliverance, they got a sermon. And they got a sermon with a convicting message. And why would God do that? Because if you look at Judges chapter 6, what the Midianites were, or what the Israelites were expressing in the midst of the Midianite oppression uh, was not repentance, but regret. Not repentance, but regret. And uh, there is <clears throat> a big difference between those two, and the world normally doesn't understand that. And sometimes I don't even understand it. But there's a huge difference. Uh, repentance produces change where regret doesn't. Repentance produces change where regret doesn't. And you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, where Paul talks about this to the Corinthian church and spells out the difference, but I don't have time this morning. And you can go back and listen to a sermon I preached on John the Baptist about the, the Greek word metanoia for repentance, which means that your mind has changed. It's like getting a brain transplant. All right, that, um, that repentance is not just kind of feeling bad about something, but in fact that your mind has been totally changed about something, that you've done a 180. Right? So your, your, your whole direction has shifted to go the other way. Now, regret is feeling sorry for something, but regret will leave lingering feelings. Regret leaves lingering feelings of guilt and all the baggage that goes on with what you've done where repentance actually removes them. Repentance will actually remove the feelings of regret that you have. Because regret is sorrowful over the consequences of sin, but not over sin itself. Right? Regret is, I got caught and now I feel really bad. Right, I got my hand caught in the cookie jar, but if I hadn't been caught, things would have been fine. Right? Uh, you know, normally the apology is, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Right? That's regret, because you're sorry that what you say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. You don't say, I'm sorry for what I've done, but I'm sorry that what I did hurt you. One of the little lines that we had in our house was growing up is when we really upset somebody when we were fooling around, we would say, I'm so sorry that you don't have a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> Well, it's not an apology. Because when you say, I'm sorry that you're hurt by this, and you don't feel bad about what you've done, really what you've said is, it's your problem. It's your problem, even though you are actually responsible for the problem that has been caused. And I mean, golly, I mean, lots of political examples of this. You know, I, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. Well, what did you think would happen? Um, but that's regret. But repentance... Repentance is actually being sorrowful over sin itself. Sorrowful about who you are and what your condition is. And to realize what has landed me in this place is me. I'm the problem. Not the Midianites, not these other circumstances, but ultimately the problem is me. And I need to come to terms with that. And when I do, uh, then... I can find, I mean, God, can, God will begin to work on that situation, which he's doing right now. Right? God sends the Midianites a prophet to try to make them realize that what they are is regretful 
They feel real bad that the Midianites are in the land, but they don't uh, feel sorrowful over the sin uh, that there was. Because if there had been no consequences, if the Midianites had just come in and pumped a lot of money into their economy and uh, turned the Mediterranean kind of a nice beach area like Amelia Island, and, um, and it was you know, really great and lovely, and oh, they built a cloister over in Caesarea Philippi. It's lovely. Um, you know, that, that would be really great, but uh, it's the consequences um, that they are lamenting. And often you will find that people who are very regretful are inconsolable. They're inconsolable. If something has happened to uh, them and they cannot be consoled, it means that, one, whatever that has been reckoned with is probably an idol in their lives, and the loss of it has made them inconsolable, that they can't deal with the issue and that there's a lot of regret with this. Right now I'm reading a book um, about um, the death. I, I read, Lauren you know, says it's perfect for sleeping, but I'm reading about the death carriage after Lincoln is shot in Ford's Theater. It's by a guy named Swanson who wrote Manhunt, which is a great book. And uh, they're talking about Mary Todd Lincoln's response uh, to Abraham Lincoln's death. And she, I mean, she was crazy, but... Uh, which you now know um, if you didn't before, but history shows that. But she was just beside herself. I mean, it caused real problems around her because she was so inconsolable. And what was clear is that um, why was she inconsolable? Because one, um, she had a lot of idols in her life, but two, and I feel bad picking on Mary Todd Lincoln, but she's like all the rest of us, um, was two was she had a lot of regret with her husband. And when he died, there were a lot of things that should have been said that were not said when he was alive. And, uh, and she lived with that uh, for the rest of her life. But God, in his mercy with the Israelites, uh, intervenes and sends them a prophet and not a savior who comes with a convicting message. And these regretful but not repentant Israelites actually find uh, mercy in all of this. Because in Judges chapter 6, what we find is that even though they're regretful but not repentant, the miracle that God's forgiveness and deliverance brings begins even though they don't show signs of repentance. God actually begins to forgive them and deliver them before they're repentant. Now, in the Old Testament, there is this constant tension between God's holiness and his grace. And ultimately, that tension is never going um, to see a resolution because God's holiness will not eliminate his grace and we're not going to see a resolution until we get to the cross where God is both just and justifier to those who believe. But what we find in Judges chapter 6 with Gideon and everybody else is God doesn't wait for us to repent before he begins to save us. We repent because God has begun his saving work he does not begin his saving work because we repent. You repent because God has already begun to initiate his saving work to you. And that's ultimately what brings about repentance. And everybody else in the world thinks it's the opposite. Everyone else in the world thinks it's the opposite. In human relationships, well, if we're going to get right, then we're going to have to repent and then things will be okay. But what we find is that often your own repentance is fueled by love from outside of you that comes from another. 
If you're dealing with someone that you don't think loves you very much and is waiting to drop the hammer on you, how likely are you going to be to go to them and say, I want you to know what I've done and I repent? Right? You're going to hide it until it gets to the point where you might have to regret it. Right? And even then, even then, and this has happened in uh, several relationships that I know of, if, if something has happened in a relationship, one party, even though the other person has come forward and said, because what they've really done is regret, they say, look, and even sometimes in repentance, they've actually re- tried to repent, but the other party has held it over their heads for the rest of their lives. And what you find is that even someone who had a heart that really wanted to repent, you'll find them pulling back uh, because uh, being repentant, you're putting yourself out there. You're putting yourself out there. And you're the one in the wrong. And when you're repenting, you're saying, I know I deserve to get crushed by the Midianites. I know I deserve uh, to get just totally thrashed. And when God finds Gideon, uh, Gideon is, does anyone remember where he finds Gideon? VBS, 20 years ago, pull it on back. Yes! All right, Charles Gaston, extra wafer for you at 11 o'clock. Actually, it's morning prayer, so you'll have to wait on that. Uh, He finds Gideon. Now, why is Gideon threshing wheat on the floor of a wine press? He's hiding, right? Because he's afraid that if the Midianites see him separating the wheat from the chaff, and having this grain that you can eat, that they're going to come rolling up and take it from them. And so God finds Gideon afraid. God finds Gideon afraid of being caught by the Midianites. And God says to him, you know, why uh, are you uh, afraid? And Gideon gives an assessment of the situation in verses 11 through 16. And what he says ultimately is that, um, God, you... um, You've abandoned us. Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, when, then why has all of this happened to us? Where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And then the Lord responds. Um, again, uh, Gideon is afraid because he thinks that he has been abandoned. But he's not been abandoned. He's been handed over. And we think that our troubles come to us as the result of God leaving us instead of God working in us for good. That actually God's loving kindness is, in front of the, is, in, is, is right in front of Gideon and his mercy is there and yet Gideon can't see it. And yet that is what is going to lead to repentance. Rather than, okay, life is really hard because more often than not, we, uh, what we want is we wait for God to do something to us or for us instead of in us. We wait for God to do something to us or for us instead of in us. What's the cry of the Israelites' heart with Midian right now? What do they want to happen? What's at the top of their prayer list? They get together every week, hold hands, and they they pray over coffee. What are they praying about? Get the Midianites out. Get them out. Just get them out, and that will solve all of our problems. Wrong. That's not the problem. And often, and what God challenges Gideon to do, is says, you know what? You might actually want to start looking at things that might be less obvious instead of things that seem so obvious. And the way that I'm going to handle this might be very different from the way that you think that I'm going to handle this. Tim Keller uses a wonderful example of, of a guy in a boat, and he's coming up to the boat, and he sees that in front of him there's a, a rock that is three feet out of the water. 
And of course, the guy prays, God, I'm going full speed toward this rock. Get rid of the rock. Right? That's how most of us pray. However, what God might have in mind is to actually elevate the water three and a half feet. So often when we are, are stuck in a place and we're under judgment and uh, we've been handed over to ourselves or we're just dealing with stuff in, in, in life, uh, the way that we pray uh, is often um, what we think is obvious to us. Lord, just get rid of the Midianites. Uh, Lord, just make my coworker get run over by a train. Uh, Lord, um, just, uh, you know, you can, we used to have a book in the bookstore in Beaufort that said, um, have a new kid by Friday. And I immediately grabbed the whole stack and I said, send them back. I said, why? And I said, because it's false. Have a new kid. Right? I mean, if, you know, if they think that reading this book is going to get them a new kid by Friday, we're going to be issuing a lot of refunds. And there's also one called a new husband by Friday, but there's not one called a new wife by Friday. So I don't know what that means. Um, but it's not, you know, how God is going to work is not necessarily the thing that's right in front of us, but God might in fact decide to work through another means. And the means by which he decides to work is through Gideon. And Gideon gives him the story that everybody in the scriptures does. And Gideon says, um, I'm the weakest of the weak. Socioeconomically, I'm not, I'm not, fit to be a judge, right? I, I can't be a judge. Um, I'm the wrong guy uh, for the job. Now, Gideon is partly right. He is the wrong guy for the job, uh, but that is exactly how God is going to work. What seems totally alien and foreign to Gideon is the way that God is going to work. So Gideon has a right assessment of himself but he's wrong about how the Lord is going to work and what the Lord is going to do uh, through him. And what I've experienced uh, in my whole life is that oftentimes Christians, they feel like when they become Christians, have to take on this false modesty, which actually is the other side of the same coin of pride. And, uh, and we say, that, I just want to be a handmaiden of the Lord, just want to be a servant of the Lord, uh, when really it may be that God wants to use you for something great, not in and of your own strength, uh, but he finds you hiding in the wine press, doing something in the wine press that really you shouldn't be doing, that you should be able to do that out in the open, and, and he challenges you and says, this is what I want to do through you. Right? God um, is still raising up Spurgeons, Billy Grahams, Mother Teresas, uh, why not us? What is it that prevents us from being any one of those people or being someone? Uh, God is going to raise somebody up, uh, but very rarely do Christians sit there and pray. And it is a dangerous prayer. Uh, God, uh, make me a Billy Graham with great hair and, uh, yeah. and a wife that keeps him in touch. Um, you know, one of the great stories about Billy Graham and uh, Ruth uh, Belgram was she was interviewed by the Charlotte Observer and was asked, Mrs. Graham, you know, it's been tough married to Billy Graham. He's on the road a lot. Uh, have you ever considered divorce? And Mrs. Graham, without missing a beat, said divorce, no. Uh, murder, yes. Um, uh, but um, Gideon is right about his assessment of himself, but he's out of touch with what God is trying to do in his life. And he's not looking at what's right in front of him and what God is saying. Because God is right, and God is saying, you're right, Gideon, in your own strength you're not going to be able to do this. But with me and because of my calling upon your life, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And so the tide begins to change from regret to repentance but in order to get to that place, it requires a great deal of self-awareness. 
And a lot of the things that you have to look at are not thinking, it's the Midianites, it's this, it's that, but it's the less obvious things that are in front of us. And in our prayer life, when we say, God, remove this rock, uh, it may actually be something else that God wants to do, the less obvious things. that, In fact, he might want to raise the level of the water so that we can pass over that rock. So, so far, so good. Gideon's doing really well. Uh, he causes a real problem with his family by chopping down a pole, and, uh, and it gets murderous. Um, but we are going to get uh, to that next week. Any comments, questions, concerns about regret, repentance, or self-awareness? Or Midianites? Okay. Yes? It's it's different, but it's the same thing. I mean, when you do evil on the side of the Lord, if the Lord's mad, it, it's it's always idolatry. It's always idolatry. No, it's a different it's a different passage, okay, um, but um, but they go hand in hand. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, let us pray as we go forth in the land of Midian. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are surrounded by the Midianites, but Lord, we pray that you would help us and in your mercy and compassion uh, that we might know what the real issue is. And Lord, that um, we might uh, know uh, what it is to have our minds changed, uh, not uh, necessarily a, a scrubbed up mind and a scrubbed up heart, but Lord, a whole new mind and a whole new heart. And so create in us clean hearts and renew a right spirit within us that we might repent and that we might turn to you, and Lord, that we might find our strength and our identity in you, and Lord, that you might reveal to us those things that we need to be praying about in our lives uh, that might be less obvious to us and yet are at the root of the problem. Lord, thank you for your mercy that you begin to forgive us, renew us before we even repent. And Lord, and in that we find repentance and we find forgiveness through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.